This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From the San Francisco Chronicle, I'm Damian Bulwa. Today on Fifth and Mission, a discussion about how San Francisco's political landscape has shaken out at a time of great tension. Tension like a criminal justice reform movement colliding with pushes to crack down on crime an ongoing failure to intervene in epidemics of homelessness and drug overdoses, and continuing debate over city voters' recall of District Attorney Chesa Boudin. My guest today is Chronicle opinion columnist Justin Phillips, who writes about race and inequality in the Bay Area. He's been closely watching San Francisco's political currents, particularly Mayor London Breed's get-tough rhetoric in the troubled Tenderloin neighborhood and the replacement of the progressive Boudin with Brooke Jenkins who has vowed to boost punishment for criminal suspects. Phillips argues this is the wrong path, that it's driven by fear, and that it worsens inequality. Observing that the city now has a black mayor, police chief, and district attorney, Phillips writes, quote, black residents can be well represented in political office, but poorly represented when it comes to the issues that affect them most. Justin, thanks for being here. Ah, thanks for having me, man. Justin, let's get right to your argument about black representation in political office. What do you mean exactly? So I'm talking about how a city that can have a marginal black population like San Francisco can have a wealth of black political representation. Yet at the same time, like we have to remember that these black candidates have to navigate a... Uh, I guess you could call it like a political structure that one wasn't created by anyone that looks like them. And it's not a space that was built for them to succeed. So there is a kind of delicate balancing act that they have to play and able to occupy those spaces. All right. So we're seeing black politicians riding this moderate line in San Francisco. They're clearly separating themselves from the progressive movement in many cases. You're saying that they sort of have to do it? Yeah, it, in a way, like you can have very progressive ideas as a candidate and then reality hits you once you're in office, because especially in a city like San Francisco, there's this idea of liberalism, but liberalism to the point where it affects my day to day. As an example, you can have public safety where people may champion very progressive reform issues as an idea when it comes to criminal justice reform. Yet, if it's something that impedes their day to day or hurts their ability to feel safe in a the city, they'll be against it. When you write that that black residents in particular are poorly represented by some of these decisions that are being made, give us some examples. Yeah. So one of the things that I always think about is just when it comes to public safety and how the city is addressing crime. And so one of the ideas that black people aren't being well represented by public officials is in how they're using policies that historically you know, criminal justice policies that have historically targeted marginalized communities, so black and brown folks. So this idea of promoting safety comes at the expense of black and brown people being over-policed, experiencing longer prison sentences, just being targeted by a system that has plenty of flaws. They're just being targeted more and more. So things like 
the threat to arrest drug users in addition to drug dealers in the Tenderloin. Exactly. Or the idea that you would try youth as adults. Like these things are in lockstep with a ton of policies over the past couple of decades that have led to mass incarceration. And as we know, like the people that are overrepresented in the jails and prisons are black people. Justin, I want to get back to Mayor Breed in a bit, but let's take a step back. I mean, this is a big moment for San Francisco, a lot of the stuff that's gone on in the Tenderloin with the with the recall election. But you trace a number of factors that got us to where we are today over the decades. Right, because the inequities that the black community faces go back that far. And I think there's a specific moment in time that we can reference that started to change San Francisco, and that is in the 1940s with urban renewal. That was basically after World War II when the idea of redeveloping blighted communities in American cities could, down the line, make those communities thriving, like give them you know, economic centers, urban renewal would bring them back to life. But when we saw that happen in San Francisco, the blighted communities that were targeted were predominantly Black neighborhoods. There was never the second chapter to that story. There was never the redevelopment that came. There was never the you know, investment that came. Those Black areas just got the demolition. They just got the destruction. They just got the torn down homes and businesses. They just got the Black families that were forced out. But they didn't get that second part. And so Black politicians in San Francisco have on their shoulders, you know, a responsibility to address those inequities that started a long, long time ago. Yeah, you've written a lot about the destruction of the Fillmore District. And and Justin, the numbers uh, are very stark and have continued in terms of the exodus of Black residents from San Francisco. Right. I mean, you know, if you're looking from the 1970s, right, when San Francisco had just under 100,000 Black residents, like 96,000. And there was a mass exodus that began then. Urban renewal itself drove out 20,000 people after it kicked off in the 40s. And today, you know, you're at less than 45,000 Black people in the city. Like that is a consistent pattern of Black flight. And, uh, and it just hasn't slowed. And even having Black officials, it just, it just hasn't been reversed or changed. And for policy, that's a less and less strong voting bloc in the city. Yeah, 100%. Like, you're losing that Black vote. But it's interesting because in San Francisco, you know, you have, there might be a diminished Black population, but it's supposed to be a very liberal city. So if you have a marginalized community, a Black and Brown community who's voicing concerns over a specific issue, or what is going on with them, you know, even if there is a voting base that's much larger than the people who are voicing those concerns, those concerns still might be championed. You still might have people that back them. At least that's the idea in a liberal city. You're listening to Fifth Admission. You can support the newsroom that creates this podcast by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, 
to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to Fifth and Mission. I'm Damian Bolwa, joined by Chronicle columnist Justin Phillips. Justin, we were talking about the diminishing population of black residents and voters in San Francisco. You know, one thing that Mayor London Breed has said as she has taken this moderate tack is that, hey, there's a lot of black voters who want more law enforcement. There's a lot of black voters that agree with me. And she grew up in the Fillmore District, and she said this quite a bit. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, when it comes to public safety and addressing crime, black people definitely aren't a monolith. Like, there are some people who want tough-on-crime approaches. If you go back to 20 years after the war on drugs was kicked off, 20-some-odd years after it was kicked off, in 1994, there was the crime bill that, you know, drastically expanded funding for prisons to grow police forces, just essentially to continue that harsh (laughs) trend in America uh, of being really tough on crime, of locking, you know, more people up, of giving them harsher sentences. That 1994 crime bill actually had a lot of support, according to polls at the time, from Black people. And there were prominent Black politicians who also championed it. But I think what we know now that those same groups might not have known then is the devastating consequences, one, of the war on drugs, and two, of you know what that crime bill set in motion. Like we have data that shows how, you know, certain communities were over-policed. We have data that shows how these, you know, tough on crime policies only affected some people. And having that information should be able to make people make better decisions behind it, especially your black politicians. Like they they know the history. Like it isn't it isn't something they haven't seen. They know this history. So Justin, in your mind, what can these leaders be doing? How can uh, Mayor Breed be navigating this? Yeah, that, that is a great question. And I am no political strategist. I, you know, I'm just a person out here watching what's happened and, and writes about it. But yeah, because Justin, I mean, there's an argument that that she can't do much if she loses the election. Right, right. So I understand that. Yeah, for sure. But I do think there are ways to make informed decisions about the path that you take, like especially when it comes to public safety. There's just too much information. There's just too rich of a history of using policies that target specific groups and how that doesn't increase safety and how mass incarceration isn't some magic bullet solution to crime. Like there is that information out there. Politicians are going to follow the path that they want, obviously. But uh, as I mentioned in the piece in San Francisco, they can also be influenced by the people who keep them in office, who might be campaign donors at one time. Like these are, they, they listen to those influential voices. What I say is you have an opportunity to change a system opposed to preserving it. And as a Black official in these spaces, I think that is your responsibility to take history into an account and focus on policies that truly are equitable. It does seem trickier, and you you write about this in your most recent piece, to deal with this as a Black politician who has uh, supporters, who has interest groups, who has donors to their campaigns. Yeah, it can be it can be really tricky because I feel like in a city like San Francisco, the conversations that a Black elected might have in a town hall in a black neighborhood where they're asking for better investment, where they're asking for, let's even say like improved relationships with police or public safety approaches that deprioritize the need for police. You know, like that conversation would be very different from that 
black elected talking to wealthier people in San Francisco who aren't people of color, whose interests might not align, whose priorities might not align with that black community. There's two very different conversations you can have. But like I said before, there is a responsibility to make sure that the communities that need help the most are getting it. If historically, you're, you know, we've had policies that have only assisted a certain segment of San Francisco, a white, liberal, affluent segment of San Francisco. You can't keep those things going because that's how these black and brown communities stay where they are. You have to have a politician that has both of these conversations, sure, but they have to make sure that they're, they're putting policies in place that help people that historically haven't had policies that help. Justin, just to challenge you one more time on your on your argument, I mean, doesn't Mayor London Breed and the DA, Brooke Jenkins, don't they believe this stuff? They believe in in so-called getting tough. They, they want more consequences for crime. They do want to arrest uh, perhaps drug dealers or have higher consequences for drug dealers. Isn't this just what they believe in? Yeah, it, 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 it is just what they believe in. You're absolutely right. And I think that's something that I've tried to hit on in past pieces that you know, I remember um, when London Breed got wrapped up in the defund mayor crowd, and she immediately had to, uh, you know, reestablish herself as a moderate. Like she wasn't some defund the police person. And I wrote a piece that talked about that. Like she has a long history of being police friendly. And these solutions aren't out of step for her. These public safety solutions aren't out of character for her. You know, her having a close relationship with the police department isn't out of character. Her trying to, you know, expand the power of the police department when it comes to surveillance, like that isn't out of character. The only thing I say is that we've seen these approaches before. And I always talk about history, like all of these pieces always reference the past. And that's really important. But we've seen these policies before, and we know from studies, from data, that they do little to make people safer, and they only result in more marginalized groups being arrested, being over-policed, and uh, being put in jails and prisons. Justin Phillips, thank you so much. Thanks, man. Thanks to my guest today. He's Chronicle columnist Justin Phillips. To Taya Francesca Price for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.